morning, church. Uh, if you can, if you're willing, pre, you can already pre-open. We're going to be out of Daniel chapter 2 today. And then we'll also be turning to Daniel chapter 7. But we're beginning in Daniel chapter 2. But in the opening chapters of the gospel, the Lord Jesus, he says this. He goes, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you're like me, there are times when you realize you just don't seem to know the obvious. Uh, much like when you ask the average Christian, you're like not trying to trick anybody, but if you say, like, hey, you know, especially like in membership class, and they're going to join the church, you go like, hey, what's the gospel? In your own words, what's the gospel? And like 90% of the time you get this deer in the headlights look because people realize all of a sudden they know this word. Somewhere in their heart they, they know it, but all of a sudden when they're asked to articulate what it is, they're like, I don't know. And you're like, no, I know you know because you're Christian. So let's think this through a little bit. You ask some good questions, and then they're like, oh, yeah, the good gospel means good news. Good news is that Jesus died for sins. Like, exactly, that's the gospel. You know it. You might not be able to articulate it. And then, thankfully, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, literally explains to us what the gospel is. So there is, without a doubt, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory for the sins of man to be saved. It's very plain. There is no doubt. And likewise, the kingdom of God is one of those terms, one of those concepts. What is it? What is the kingdom of God? And there was a time in my Christian life, so many years ago, I was reading through the gospel some upteenth time, as many of you have. And you know when you had that moment, that like light bulb moment, you're like, oh man, I have, actually, I don't know what he's talking about. I can't believe I've read the gospels this many times and have never really thought, what is the kingdom of God? And I had that eye-opening moment, so I began that pursuit. But unlike 1 Corinthians 15, there is no, the kingdom of God is definition statements in the scriptures. In fact, uh, a casual read of the New Testament shows us that nobody seems to question Jesus on what the kingdom is. No one stops Jesus and goes, well, Rabbi, you know, you tell me to repent and the good news and the kingdom is here. What kingdom, Rabbi? What are you talking about? Nobody does that. In fact, the whole New Testament assumes that you and I, its readers, know what Jesus is talking about. And so I, at that moment, was like, I don't know. And yet it assumes that I do know what the kingdom of God is. So again, what is it? What is the kingdom of God? The late R.C. Sproul, he wrote this concerning our question. He says, well, the easy answer would be to note that a kingdom is that territory over which a king reigns. And since we understand that God is the creator of all things, the extent of his realm must be the whole world. Manifestly, then, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. <coughs> Excuse me. And since he reigns everywhere, the kingdom of God must be everywhere. And that makes sense. That, that, I think, makes sense. And that's kind of the initial conclusion. As I was reading this article years ago, I was like, oh, yeah, that must make sense. And then it's not. He continues. He goes, but I think Jesus is speaking of something else. Certainly, the New Testament gets at something else. We see this when John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness with this urgent announcement. Repent. Turn from evil, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we see it again when Jesus appears on the scene with the same pronouncement. If the kingdom of God consists of all of the universe over which God reigns, why would anyone announce that the kingdom of God was near or about to come to pass? Obviously, John the Baptist and Jesus meant something more than the cosmic rule of God when they are proclaiming that the kingdom was at hand. So this is concept we're going to explore. We want to explore because the kingdom of God is mentioned so many times in the New Testament, it's unavoidable to think about. It's unavoidable to come to a conclusion about. 
And given the challenges we face in this age, which they're not new, they're just new to us. Every generation faces pretty much the same things in different ways. But, you know, in our own lifetimes, we faced a global plague. Was there anybody who really thought they were going to face a global plague in their life? Probably not. The proliferation of critical race theory and intersectionality as a means to a communist utopia, rioting and violence, the hostile and polarized political landscape, cancel culture, war, the widespread validation of sexual sin and abortion as an essential human right. Like People believe that these things are necessary to be human. The denial of objective manhood and womanhood. Did you ever think you'd live a day to see when this con- the, the assumed concept that men and women are actually real categories is just a myth now? Did you really think you would ever endure or face those times? Like, that just seems like an absurd proposition. What about the censorship and manipulation of large companies and conglomerations, postmodernism and the crazy influence the media can have, inflation, terrorism, savage hypocrisy, and this constant use of the term social justice that you hear all the time? It's revealed, the response to these things has revealed what many people occupying the pews in the churches across the United States, but also the world, has revealed what we think about the kingdom of God, whether you realize it or not. And also, I want to know, even the rejection of these things can include a response that, and a belief that might be as antithetical to the kingdom of God as these problems are in and of themselves. So we must tread carefully, for we don't want to participate or build up a kingdom that does not belong to God. I don't want to be guilty of that sin, participating in a kingdom that isn't Jesus' kingdom. And I would like to believe neither do you. And so to make sure of this, we need to know what is the kingdom of God. And that leads us back to our preaching question for this morning and our kind of theme for the whole month. What is the kingdom of God? What is it? And we're going to begin to answer our question, here's our method, by first examining how God uses this term kingdom and its elements in a normal and secular sense. And we're going to see how these are true of God's kingdom. Because when God even uses the term kingdom to describe what he has, he's using a term that's relatable and political. You and I immediately get a sense impression when you hear the word kingdom. Obviously, a kingdom has to involve some type of king. It has to involve people, territory, land, stuff like that. Intuitively, you know what kingdom is. It's something like that. And these elements I propose to you are also true for God's kingdom. They're just in greater and larger scope than any earthly kingdom can ever compare. And secondly, a part of our method is that our answer needs to be simple. Because we are taking a vastly rich, theologically complex topic that spans the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, this idea of God's kingdom... And we need to make it easy to grasp because God's word and God's kingdom are meant to be understood by God's people. And imagine this. Imagine if a person had no knowledge of the United States and they asked you, like, hey, some foreigner, and they said, hey, explain to me how the government works here. It would be a bad and wrong answer, very unwise to then start talking about bureaucracy and congressional committees and electoral college and all these things. When they have no clue what you're talking about, the good answer would be to step back and say, oh, well, I remember my social studies class that the government is three separate but equal branches. That's the type of answer we want to get at, the substance or the core of what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God. And the same way if you had to really boil down what the government is in our country, you would say it's three separate and equal branches. We want an answer like that, something 
palatable that we can chew on that won't overload us because the kingdom story is the entire Bible. This is a great undertaking, and I've been sweating over this all week. How do you take something so vast and make it understandable and plain? So that's our plan today, looking at secular kingdoms and how God describes them, seeing the parallels to his own, and then finding an answer that will be short and succinct and provable. So we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 2. We'll jump to Daniel chapter 7 afterwards. But a little bit of context for chapter 2. The Jews are in exile in Babylon, and there's this pagan king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was a world empire at the time. And this king named Nebuchadnezzar had a series of terrifyingly awful dreams. And it gave him great distress. So much so that he calls for all the wise men and magicians of Babylon to be able to come to him and interpret his dream. But he does so with a twist. He just says, not only do I want you to interpret my dream, I want you to tell me what my very dream was. And they're like, okay, well, interpret it. Just tell us what your dream is. He goes, no, no. You need to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. He does this because he wants the answer to be sure. Because in a world filled with magicians and charlatans and all that, it seems that King Nebuchadnezzar was so distressed by these dreams that he wanted to make sure that the answer would be genuine. So he put this extreme test in front of it. You need to be able to tell me what I actually dreamt before you even try to interpret it. His word would be law. And he says, by the way, if you can't do this, y'all are going to put to death. Not just who can't do it. Every one of the magicians and wise men in Babylon will be put to death if you all can't do this, because I know you're all charlatans and fakes then. And he can do it. He was the king. He had the power to do that. And, of course, it's impossible. Nobody can know the thoughts of a man's heart like that. No one can. And the story quickly goes south. He orders all the magicians and wise men to be killed. But, thankfully, God sends him a prophet at the 11th hour, the man Daniel, the one who this book is named after. And that brings us to today's reading. It's a little bit long, but if you can and you are willing, please stand for the word of the living and true God. Daniel chapter 2, 25 through 47. The word of the living and true God says this. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I had and see in its interpretation? And Daniel answered and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your head. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, or like a statue. And this statue, this giant image, Mighty and exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold 
all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It, this kingdom that God will declare and establish, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it alone shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you, Daniel, have been able to reveal this mystery. And our second portion of the reading is Daniel seven thirteen to 14. It says this, Daniel speaking, relating a vision he has, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. These are the words of the living and true God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We just read your word, and already most of us, we either read this or somewhat experienced it, but we, we already get this hint that there is a better hope, there is a better ending, there is a dominion and a kingdom that will not fade. And Lord, I pray that this message of the kingdom this morning would excite us, would inflare our passion for you, for your kingdom, your glory, your causes, your purposes, ultimately for the glory of Christ. And Lord, even if we're skipping to the end now, we thank you for the, we have a kingdom that will not fade, that will not end, and will be the only kingdom that there is. Thank you for this great hope that we have. Help us receive your word today. Write it true to our hearts. Speak to us this morning for the glory of your son. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So before we begin giving credit to where credit is due. Uh, the outline for the sermon today, uh, I adopted some of it, 
but modified it from a book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross by Patrick Schreiner. It's a short book about the kingdom of God. It's really good. If you're interested where some of these ideas come from, this is probably one of the better resources I've gotten on just how do you think about the kingdom of God as it spans the Bible. It's a good resource. Get it. Get a copy. Read it. Tell me what you think. It's a good discussion. Now, to our sermon. Nebuchadnezzar has his vision told to him and interpreted by Daniel, and he says the great statue represents successive but declining kingdoms, and it includes their ultimate destruction. So for us, though, like back to our method, we're trying to define God's kingdom by looking at these secular ones. We're going to park in verses 37 and 38, and we're going to see how God begins to define this idea of what a kingdom is. And I believe that you and I, your intuition about what a kingdom includes is probably accurate. God's not trying to trick us by using this term kingdom to describe what he possesses. So 37 and verse 38 in chapter 2, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. It's in these two short verses, church, that we will examine the first three preaching points on your outline of what God's kingdom includes. God's kingdom includes people, or sorry, power, people, and a place. If you remember anything this morning of what the kingdom of God is, it includes those three elements. Power, people, and a place. Your intuition about God's kingdom is probably accurate. It's one of those words that seems to be self-defining. Yet we will examine each element. And the first element being power, our first preaching point, is that the kingdom of God is the king's power. Power, it's a broad term, but it includes things like authority, the actual right to rule. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was told in this that God himself gave him the right to rule over these people. Imagine if one of you stood up this morning and said, hey, I'm your king now. That would be weird. It'd interrupt the sermon. It'd be really weird. But we would have to say, well, who makes you boss? Like those types of questions, right? Who gives you the right to then rule over us? Like that would be a legitimate question if someone legitimately thought they had some authority. And the Bible tells us, the rest of the scripture says that there's no powers or authorities that exist except the ones that God allows to exist. From Babylon, which we would look back and say was a pagan, awful, evil kingdom. Think about that, Christian. God says that this power existed because God allowed it to exist. And he established it. Power also includes this idea of laws. The authority of the king, the will of the king needs to be carried out. Uh, Power includes judgment and righteousness. I mean, what happens when you violate laws? The king has the right to punish those who disobey his law and to reward those who do good. And I uh, hopefully... Judgment and righteousness is, you know, exemplified as good things. But as we know, many times kingdoms are not. And lastly, one element of power that's really important is how a king or a ruler protects and saves their people. It's very important how the king protects and serves his people. In a sense, a king is required to protect his kingdom from outside forces and outside powers. We've seen this played out in wars across human history. Usually for the wrong reasons, usually for greed and wealth and all that, but on some level, a king is supposed to protect their people, flourish them. It's supposed to be for good. The powers that God set up are supposed to be for the good and flourishing of people. But, well, now if we know that the kingdoms of this world include this idea of power, 
which, again, is good. God's design is to flourish us under these things. Romans tells us that God sets these things up essentially as his ministers. They're supposed to be for good. Yet, time and time again, we see in the history of kingdoms and governments and world powers, we see evil kings and tyrants domineering over the people, sucking the life out of them, and abusing their power, and really it's just to make themselves more wealthy and more powerful. So I ask you then, how much more then does God's kingdom and God's power include true power for the true good, for the true good of the people? For our God is a good God. And his power includes the same elements, but again, for good, because God's kingdom is good. So when you think about God's kingdom having power, think about authority. Our God has established that the man Christ Jesus would have all authority. Jesus tells us in the close of the gospel, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, which means that our Jesus has the right to say that every human being, every house, every rock, every tree, every everything belongs to him. No one else can ever, in good conscience, ever say that. They might have delusions that there's some powerful dictator who wants to conquer the world, but our Jesus has legitimate authority legitimate, powerful authority to say that, no, no, this really is all mine. I have a right over these things. Because there is no person or place that Jesus can't claim as his own. Christ is our God King. Think about the power of God's laws. Does does God have laws? Well, of course he does. He literally has the law of God. Think of the Ten Commandments. Then we have the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus tells us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my word. You'll keep my law. Again, God's kingdom has kingdom law. The Apostle James calls it the royal law to describe how Christians are to have this ethical quality about them. We do have a thing that we're supposed to be answerable to. The power of God's judgment and righteousness. God tells us those who obey his word and seek his heart you know, will be rewarded with eternal life. And those who disobey and ignore his word and law will face eternal destruction. There are consequences for obeying or disobeying God's law. And then... If you really want to know what the king's power looks like, if you really want to know what the power of the God's kingdom looks like, look no further than the saving acts of our great Savior and Christ King. So from the Exodus, we're thinking about it. Our Christ King destroyed the most powerful nation on the planet at the time, to our understanding, to save his special promised chosen people who were being oppressed by a fake God King called Pharaoh who thought himself as a God King was making the chosen people of God murder their babies by throwing them in the Nile and was forcing them into slave labor to build up his own wealth and power. Our God King does not tolerate it when his people are oppressed like that. The Exodus gives us a great example of the saving power of our God. Fast forward to Christ himself when he paid for our sins. He saves the people of God, the chosen people, from sin and death, the thing that kept us separated from God. And then we have the final future salvation of our Christ King, our God King, who would he promise us? He tells us in First Thessalonians, and really like the whole story of the Bible, the New Testament, he says that one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to save you completely. He tells us in First Thessalonians 1, chapter 10, that Christians, we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the wrath to come, church, is called the day of the Lord. It is the day of salvation, similar to the Exodus story, but think of it global and cosmic in scope. It will involve all people from all nations and not just the Egyptians. This day will be a terrible day, but it will be the final salvation 
the final saving act for the people of God when Jesus destroys all evil so only righteousness remains. Jesus Christ, our great King and Savior, truly loves his special people and promises he will truly come back for us to fix the world and save us. Because every king has to have a special people. Every king has subjects. And just as God told Nebuchadnezzar that his power would be over people and animals wherever they were on the earth, wherever he could find them, likewise, again, the kingdom of God has a people. For the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people, which is our second preaching point. God has a people. The kingdom of God has a people. And I'm sure it comes as no shock to everyone listening in this room today, but Christians are the people of God and the citizens of his kingdom, those who are under his saving power. And the New Testament regularly confirms this. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, God has delivered us, Christians, from the domain of darkness and transferred us or moved us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, he says, again, talking to Christians, he goes, But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what's important here is that Peter is quoting and using the language of the Old Testament God uses to describe Israel. He's literally quoting Exodus 19.6 where God tells the Israelites that same verse. He's saying that is true of Christians because God has only continuously had one people because this Bible is a story of God saving his people. And now he's applying that scripture, this chosen idea. He says this is true of Christians in the church. And this is because to be a citizen of God's kingdom is not one based on ethnic descent or ancestral pedigree, but by trusting the Christ King and being under his saving power, which is God's mercy to us, as Peter says. And this is the good news of the kingdom and why every Christian of all time can claim this same truth about their new identity and their new king and their new loyalty and their new home. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship, our true loyalty, our true home, where we truly belong to, is in heaven, the king's place. And from it we wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Our third preaching point, the king's place. So we mentioned earlier, every kingdom and every nation has some kind of boundary or some kind of scope of influence, a place for its citizens to dwell. God told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would be massive. He goes, wherever you go, wherever you find people and animals and birds, wherever you can essentially exert your will, that'll be yours, Nebuchadnezzar. That'll be the boundary of your kingdom. Essentially, he could stake a claim and exert his sovereignty wherever he could, and it would be his. But it was still limited and still of this world. God's kingdom, on the other hand, church, is different. Its place for its people is unique. Our dwelling is unique. So if we had to pause for a moment, and we had to really think about it, and we had to ask ourselves, where is the kingdom of God at right now? What would you answer? What would you think about that? Because with great confidence, we can know and look around on this earth and say, well, it ain't here. God's kingdom ain't really here, is it? Like, we see 
craziness and chaos, decay and war and famine and all these bad things, and we see much of the earth living in opposition to our God King Jesus, the world's in opposition to the Lord. So is the kingdom of God like really here? Like what do we mean by that? Evil has not been eradicated. It's still very present. And Jesus makes this clear that his kingdom is not of this earth. Before he was crucified, our Lord told the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he says, indeed I am a king and I was born for this very purpose. But he reminds him, he says, but Pilate, paraphrase to you, he goes, my kingdom, it's not of this world. It's not of this earth. It's, it's not like the evil, it's not like the thing you serve. It's not like the Romans. It's not like that, Pilate. It's not. It's not of this world. Jesus said his kingdom essentially was heavenly in its origin and its character. And we get further insight into this heavenly kingdom in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. After the resurrection, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 gives us a description of how Jesus now is uh, coronated as king. You know, when the king goes in, you ever watch the royal stuff and those Brits where they come in, they have the big pompous parade and all that, and they sit and they hand them this little things in their hands, put the crown on their head. It's supposed to be like a big deal, but we're Americans. I don't know why we even care about that, but we always have it on the news when it happens because I guess it's a big deal. Um, That is real for Jesus, though. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He ascends up into heaven, and Ephesians says this. Paul the apostle, describing this event, says, God the Father seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if we're thinking about where's the kingdom of God right now, we would have to say it's wherever the king is seated. And that's in heaven. Our Christ King is seated in heaven on his glorious throne. <coughs> but it also says that Jesus has been made head of the church, his kingdom community, his people. And it is through this kingdom community, the church, that Jesus is ruling from heaven and exerting his will in this broken world. Each genuine gospel preaching centered church is an outpost of the kingdom of God on the earth. Like a mini fortress, an outpost. So if you want to see and know where you can find the kingdom of God, look no further than your local church and the individual lives of each and every member of that church. But this is important. The kingdom of God and the church are not identical. It's not a one-for-one thing. But they're interrelated and inseparable. You can't have the church and not have the kingdom. That doesn't work out. And what I mean by this is that the message of the kingdom, the gospel, creates the kingdom people, the church, and the church is the steward and proclaimer of that same kingdom message, which in turn expands the kingdom one soul at a time. Or you could put it this way. The kingdom of God creates the church and the church advances the kingdom. It's a, it's, a, it's a two-sided coin idea. They don't exist without each other. Well, I guess the kingdom of God could exist on its own without us because Jesus has always been a king. But the, this is important because the agenda of the kingdom, this agenda of the kingdom, what God's kingdom is about, is the great commission of the church, which is to save people from every tribe and language and people and tongue and nation from the kingdom of darkness 
and to change their citizenship and loyalty to that of heaven, the kingdom of God. And why this is so important to understand is because God's kingdom agenda is not about saving the nations or cultures or societies in their current form or simply creating a moral majority that can have political sway. God is not trying to make the kingdom of darkness good. God is not trying to make the kingdom of darkness a better place, which, bear with me on this, but think back to that vision of Daniel. God's kingdom, that rock, does not coexist with the other kingdoms. God's plan is to destroy the kingdom of darkness and save people from it, which includes all the way you and I think about nations and barriers and political divisions and darkness and all that stuff and craziness we see in the world. God's plan is to get rid of all that. So only his kingdom remains. So if you, Christian, want to see the world a better place, just remember that as Christians, the church, this kingdom community, our goal is not just to get our way politically, not just to get our way to like fix our nation and stuff like that. Our goal is to proclaim the good king, what he has done, and get people to align their lives with him by trusting him. That is our only goal. Now, it would be great if everybody was Christian and then we'd all have good politics and good law and good, you know, like abortion, right? We all believe abortion's bad. But our end goal is not to stop abortion. Our end goal is to proclaim the gospel and save people because the kingdom of darkness, as we read, will continue to the very end. I'm not saying we shouldn't get involved in all that, but the main thing is the gospel because people who are in the kingdom of darkness cannot even think about the light. They will not change simply because we have some moral majority or political power, which if that happens, and it has happened in the history of the world, right? Think of the Roman Empire. Christians turned it upside down. It changed the way, like plenty of the younger is like, these guys are bad. They called Christians atheists. They were a threat to the Roman state because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And look what it did. It brought in the gospel across the planet. It was a great thing at that time. But what eventually happens? The darkness responds. And that darkness will stay until the end. This kingdom agenda will one day come to an end. This saving people, this going out, telling people to like, guys, there's a better kingdom and you need to repent. That one day will end when Jesus Christ returns, when our king comes back. Because it's at that time when our king returns that the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness because at that day our king will be with us. He will move his seat from heaven to the created things. And we call this the final inauguration. Christ will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the nations. The New Testament time and time again tells us when this Jesus comes back, it'll be the end. It'll be the day of reckoning. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He'll judge the nations. All that type of language is used repeatedly. And he says, those who have rejected the gospel and our Christ King will be judged and cast into everlasting damnation while the faithful will receive the full and eternal kingdom, thus fulfilling all of God's promises, which is our last preaching point. When Jesus returns, it is God fulfilling all of his promises about his good kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place to fulfill his promises to his people. When Jesus returns, 
and finalizes his kingdom, every prophecy that God had proclaimed about the fullness of his kingdom will have come to pass. And again, we've already talked about it a couple of times, but we read in Daniel 2, the rock that was cut out by God, that smashed the other kingdoms, destroyed all the opposition. That happens when Jesus returns. He pounded these world empires into dust that only it remains. Revelation exalts the saying, Babylon has fallen. They use, Revelation uses this language of Babylon to epitomize the world. And he says, these world powers, they will fall. And the church rejoices over that. A day will come when these things are destroyed. When the kingdom of darkness is fully eradicated. And we read in Daniel 7, the most clearest understanding of Christ, because he uses this in Matthew 24 to describe himself. Jesus does. He says, when I come back on the clouds, this is what Daniel's talking about. When I come back, I will receive this kingdom in its fullness now. He's king now in heaven, but when he comes back, he's going to plant his flag and claim full sovereignty, authority, and power over the earth, destroying all opposition. He'll receive a kingdom that shall never end or be destroyed. The return of Christ is God fulfilling these promises. And it's only when God's kingdom remains and the enemies of God are destroyed that true peace and harmony can occur and the restoration of all things. You and I live in a very fallen, sinful, and broken world. We read about it in the garden. Everything is cursed. We die. There's sickness. All this awful stuff. When Jesus comes back, he's going to restore the earth, and it's called the new heavens and the new earth. In his apocalyptic vision, John the Apostle, he sees this completed kingdom of God in its fullness. He sees it, and he describes it as such in Revelation 21. John tells us that He saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor any, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So if there's anybody here today or in our world who wants to see a truly better tomorrow, who really wants that, I think that utopia is written on our hearts. We want to see peace. We don't want to see violence. We don't, I think most of us don't really want that. If that's you, if you want to live in a place where the hungry are fed, the poor are made rich, There's no more violence or mass shootings. There's no more war. There's no more babies being murdered. There's no more sex trafficking or sexual assault. There's no more abused mom and single moms and stuff like that. No more fatherless children. No more sickness, disease, old age or pain, loneliness, isolation, being afraid, being anxious. If you want to see a place where there's no suffering, real promises from our good king, a place where there is no suffering, you and I can't even understand what that's like because that's normal to us. In a place where death itself doesn't exist. People won't die anymore. We just had a slew of funerals. That won't happen one day. People will no longer die. No longer will you be separated from your spouse and have to live through old age alone. That won't happen. You won't lose children. That won't happen. And you'll live in a place where you when you know you fail to love people, you will live in a place where you will have the power to actually love people perfectly. And you yourself will be loved perfectly. That is what the kingdom of God is about in all of its fullness. 
That's the end story for us. If you long for that reality, then the kingdom of God is your only hope. For this world, it's passing away, church. That's the story of the New Testament. That's the vision we read in Daniel. The world is passing away in its form as you and I understand it. The United States won't exist anymore. The communist people of China won't exist. Russia, none of this will exist like we think it will anymore. It will be better. That should be our hope. That's our loyalty. That's our home. That's what you should ache for when you wake up in the morning. Even on the best of days, you know right around the corner someone's being hurt. You know there's violence somewhere, and you know there's still sin in your heart. And you contribute to that, just like I do. The day is coming when this will not be like that anymore. And that's our message to this fallen world. That's our message. Only God's kingdom is the perfect and everlasting kingdom. And that is why when Jesus came preaching, this kingdom is at hand. These promises that are in the Old Testament, that the people of God, they may not have understood it fully, because you can't understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. But they knew that there was a better tomorrow for the people of God. They may not have understood it fully, but they knew that these promises were real, which is why nobody questions Jesus about this kingdom he's talking about. The prophets are rich in this language of a better tomorrow. And church, that's our better tomorrow. And as we come to a close, this great kingdom that's available to any and all who will receive it, the way you participate in it, it's, it's got to be a personal decision. You have to personally choose to be a part of this kingdom. The many elements we spoke of today, power, people, a place, and promises, those are all true. But the scripture also says that the kingdom of God is one of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, meaning there's some kind of like inner heart quality to this kingdom. It's not just this kingdom that's external to who you are. It's It's a kingdom that has to take root in your heart first. We call this salvation. If you want to have this peace and joy and you want to be right with God and be a part of this kingdom that will last, if you want to inherit these great promises with a better tomorrow, you have to bow the knee to the king, which is Jesus Christ. We do that by asking him to forgive us, by accepting his work on the cross. Jesus dying on the cross is essentially the key to the kingdom. It's the door into the kingdom. It's the way you enter in. And that's the gospel message. That's the same message the church has been preaching for 2,000 years. Will you receive Christ as king? Will you receive Christ as the God, king, savior he is? It has to be personal. No No one is born into the kingdom, but everyone enters into it if they choose to. And right now, this promise is available to you or you watching online or you listening, wherever you may be, whoever hears this. The kingdom is available to you. Will you choose Jesus today? Will your loyalty be to him and his kingdom and his causes and his purposes? Will you join the kingdom community? We're going to have a time of invitation to pray about that. Maybe you say, Adam, I know I'm a citizen of the kingdom, but I haven't really been participating in the work of the kingdom. I haven't been living out the demands of the kingdom in my life. And if that's you, you're not alone. We all fall short in serving the king as we should. Or maybe you know someone that hasn't entered the kingdom yet and they need to be prayed for. Don't waste this time not praying for those who haven't received Christ. Because this kingdom is their only hope. Because they're part of the kingdom of darkness. No matter how nice you think they are, no matter how good you think they are, if their loyalty and citizenship is not a part of the kingdom of God, 
They are a part of the kingdom of darkness and are enemies of the living God, just as all of us were at one time until we received his mercy. So use this time. Pray. Cry out to God. Cry out for justice. Whatever that looks like right now for us where you're at, use this time. I'll pray for us, and then we'll have our response. Father God, thank you for the kingdom. Thank you for this glorious kingdom of your glorious son, a kingdom that is so perfect, its words don't even do it justice, a kingdom where there's perfect righteousness and justice and harmony and peace and all the things that seem so far away in this broken world, Lord. Yet you say it's true of your kingdom, and a day will come when the good king returns and establishes it fully, and every other kingdom will be destroyed. Every demonic power will be destroyed. Everyone in opposition to you will be swept away. And the only thing that will remain is righteousness. As the words of the closing of Revelation says, the spirit and the bride, the church, say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That is our heart's prayer, Jesus. Come back soon and finish the work you started on the cross. Do it for your glory and your namesake. And until that time, we pray to be about your kingdom agenda, the Great Commission. Do what only you can do, Lord, for the glory of your Son. Amen.